Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you all for coming today on this beautiful day. Um, and uh, in the next, uh, I guess, uh, hour and a hour, we're going to try to do something audacious, which is to introduce you to Kabbalah and have a little uh, spin on it, have a little unique spin on it, um, and try to figure out its uh, relevance for today. Um, so how many people have had some exposure to Kabbalah? Oh, the whole room full of Kabbalists. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, great. Um, so, can everybody see the screen, by the way? Because the screen is going to be absolutely crucial. Because I, that's, so, got to see the screen. I'm less important than the screen. Um, what I want to do is to put to you today something, which is um, in the last few decades, I say last two or three decades, Kabbalah has moved from the margins uh, to become very, very central to Jewish life. And it's one of the languages in which Jews today from all parts of the spectrum argue about the meaning of Judaism. Um, this was not true when I was growing up. I grew up uh, in a modern Orthodox community, um, and it was a very rationalist time. I was a kid in the 60s. It was a very rationalist time in my community, and we studied Maimonides and Salvechik, it was very rational. Um, we did not talk at all about Kabbalah. Um, and when people argued about Judaism, they tend to argue about different ways of understanding Judaism as a rational system. Um, that is true in some areas of Jewish life today, but somewhere along the lines, probably starting in the 70s and then going through today, Kabbalah became again a mainstream discourse, as it had been for many centuries earlier. Um, Art Green, I, who I, uh, one of the leading scholars of Kabbalah and Hasidut, I heard him speak uh, about 10 years ago. He said, our generation in Jewish life will be known as a generation when Kabbalah again became part of the Jewish mainstream. Um, and my talk today is really, in part, an answer to the question of why. Why is it that Kabbalah has become so, in all parts of the spectrum, all the way from what one might call the cultural and religious and political left, all the way to the cultural, religious, and political right. So on the far left or cultural and religious left, Jewish renewal, um, uh, the Kohenet movement, uh, feminist waves in Judaism, um, and then on the right, the settler movement uh, uh, in the hills of Judea, everyone's using Kabbalah. Everyone somehow finds in Kabbalah an answer to the questions that they're asking, um, which is a really striking phenomenon. It really isn't limited to one part of the Jewish world. 
And uh, talk today is really why. Why is that? And I'm going to sort of introduce you to Kabbalah in a way that might answer that question. And, I th and the title, I think, really uh, is sort of sums it up. Kabbalah is the cry of a broken world. Right? Um, in rationalist forms of Judaism, you start off with a postulate that God is one, and God is perfect, and God is all-powerful, and God is, you know, no emotions. He's just no b drama, right? And we, we're messed up and all this stuff, but God is just perfect and just smooth and cool. Um, in Kabbalah, especially in 13th century Kabbalah, which is really my field, the era of the Zohar, um, God is broken, God is in exile, um, there's a, many different faces of God, and they have a lot of drama with each other, family drama with each other. Um, and uh, the goal of Kabbalistic study and practice is to unify, unify the divine, and through unifying the divine, through unifying the world. And the basic thing I want to say is that, I think, is why Kabbalah has become so important, because we experience our world as broken, we experience our world as divided, um, and Kabbalistic language, and especially what I call Kabbalistic mythology, uh, responds to that experience of brokenness that we all experience in, in the world at large, and sometimes, unfortunately, in our own lives, um, but certainly in the world at large, and all you have to do is read the headlines of any newspaper in any part of the world any day of the week, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I start off with the, the title, not, so that's the subtitle, the title is supposed to be intentionally provocative. When people think about Judaism, they think, well, there's one thing I know about Judaism mm -hmm. is that it's monotheism, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody, you stop somebody on the street and say, what is Judaism? Well, those are the people who believe in one God, right? Um, if this line that is my title, but now God is not one, is a quote. Is a quote from the Zohar. That's why it's in quotation marks. But now God is not one, that God is broken. Um, and that the world is broken. If the world is broken, it must mean that God is broken. I, maybe, I'll leave question in, maybe I'll leave questions at the end just so I can get through, because I know it's, uh, everything I'm saying is going to be very provocative. And uh, in, in fact, it's intentionally provocative. I'm trying to be intentionally provocative, even, even shocking. Um, so, uh, you know, take it in, and we'll get to questions at the end. I put here as a... Uh, as the background, it's actually a, a painting by Kandinsky, the modernist poet Kandinsky, uh, The Last Judgment. Um, and, you know, modern art is really another place in which, uh, modern art in the sense of the early 20th century art is really a place in which the brokenness of the world came into expression, and I'll show you a couple of examples of that. Um, it's not unitary. This painting, it, you know, it's a painting that is very beautiful, but it doesn't have really a central focus. You'd really have to work at it to figure that out. Um, I, could I could have shown you uh, classic paintings of The Last Judgment being very, very different. Um, and modern artists really also try to express, I think, in their art, the brokenness of the world um, and try to have an aesthetic representation of a broken world. And I find that kind of representation in Kabbalah, especially, say, in its classic period. So let's actually look at uh, the passage that this phrase comes from, and we'll look, maybe we'll look at it a couple of times. This is from the Zohar, and I'll, in a minute I'll suggest, uh, give you a little introduction to what the Zohar is. Um, it's talking about 
Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it in a, in a bigger form. I just want to put out the, the sort of the shocking, scandalous form, sort of the takeaway. Um, yeah, I, you know, you could tell your friends, I went to a class on Judaism, and I came out with the idea that God is not one. Right? So this is a quote from the Zohar. But now the blessed hold now, but now, right? Now in our time, right? In the Aramaic word, I'll teach you a couple of Aramaic words during this hour. Hashta. Can everybody say hashta? Hashta. Hashta means now, right? And then when the Zohar says hashta, they really mean now, hashta. But now the blessed holy one is not called one. A very shocking statement from, in a Jewish book, a Jewish holy book. Now God is not called one. Now the blessed holy one is not called one. The mystery of this matter. What is the mystery? What are, what are we saying? And here now we start with some very, very classic Kabbalistic concepts. Assembly of Israel, which here does not mean the people of Israel, but means the Shekhinah, is in exile. And the Blessed Holy One has ascended above, above. And the coupling has been separated. And the holy name is not complete and is not called one. So this is a this is like starting Kabbalah, throwing you into, it's like learning how to swim by jumping into the deep end of a pool, right? Especially for people who have not had exposure to Kabbalah. We, audit, we see here, we plunge you right into Kabbalah. There are two divine figures in this passage. There's a divine figure called the Blessed Holy One, who's generally identified as male, and a divine figure called the Shekhinah, which is generally identified as female. And both of those terms, the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah, come from rabbinic times. And the Kabbalists, when they took them over, they gave them a whole new meaning. And they're a couple. The Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah are a couple, a male-female couple. And when they are coupling, and the, a lot of the Zohar has some very graphic sexual descriptions of their coupling, everything is good. When their coupling separates, the world is in crisis. And that's what it says here. The Shekhinah is in exile. The Blessed Holy One has ascended above, above. The coupling is ruptured. And God is not one. God is broken. The Holy Name is not one. And God is not one. If you take away one thing from this talk, this is what you should take away from. There's a whole new, whole different idea about Judaism. Now, let's backtrack. What is the Zohar? Well, uh, first... Kabbalah really develops in southern France and Spain in the 12th and 13th century. Right? It first appears, Kabbalistic circles first appear in Provence at the end of the 12th century. The first texts we have are really from around 1170 from Provence. And then it migrates across the Pyrenees and it, it starts flourishing in what we today call Spain, in Catalonia and Castile. It culminates in these writings that today we call the Zohar, the Book of Radiance, um, that uh, was mostly written in Castile, in Spain, in the late 13th century, probably from around 1260, 1270, till about 1300, 1310. It's written in Aramaic, not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic, which at the time of the Talmud, of course, was the vernacular language. In Spain, it was not a vernacular language. Nobody spoke Aramaic. It's a literary language. It was written by a scholars said I think it was written by a bunch of people, a lot of whose names we know and we can sort of figure out by looking at their other writings that they publish in their own names, written anonymously. It's circulated in pamphlets. These anonymous Aramaic pamphlets are circulating. Eventually, over the centuries, gathered together in greater and greater collections, 
and eventually published in the mid-16th century um, in Italy under, with his name, the Sefer Azor, the Book of Radiance. Um, and it's an amazing text. It's very poetic. It's very beautiful. The language is beautiful. It's, it's written in with a real literary sensibility, um, with meter and rhyme and alliteration and all the characteristics one associates with poetry or with prose poetry. Um, and it really became the central work of Kabbalah. It really is the central work. It's sort of, as it were, the Bible of Kabbalah is the Zohar. Um, and all of Kabbalah that follows after it really in one way or another, or most of Kabbalah after it, is a commentary on the Zohar in some way. Okay. Now, I, I said earlier that the Zohar is a book of mythology, right? And it's something that people who are not exposed to Kabbalistic interpretations of Judaism might find actually very surprising. We think of in Judaism as God is one. It turns out in Kabbalah, God has many faces. And this idea of various faces of God in later Kabbalah, they're actually called partzufim, which is uh, sort of an Aramaic word for, the, for face. Um, and I like to call them personae. Um, and there are actually five of them. You may have heard of the Christian trinity. Eh, three is OK. How about five? Even better, right? There are five of them. So there, and I've written them here, right? There's the holy ancient one, sometimes called uh, uh, the oldest one, or the, the, another way of interpreting it is the, the grandfather, the Saba de Savin, could be the, the oldest of old ones, or the grandfather of grandfathers. Then there is a supernal father. Supernal is just a word meaning sublime or highest. And the supernal mother. And they have two children. And their two children are sometimes called son and daughter. But these two children, the son and the daughter, are also a conjugal couple. They're a romantic, sexual, conjugal couple called the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah, also called the Bridegroom and the Bride. Um, people might know the, one of the most famous songs in the Jewish liturgy is L'Chadodi. Does everybody hear of L'Chadodi? Every synagogue in the world sings L'Chadodi on Friday night. L'Chadodi is a Kabbalistic poem written in Safed in the 16th century by a Kabbalist named Shlomo Al-Kabetz HaLevi. And it says, L'chadudi, come my beloved, likrat kala, let us greet the bride. And the bride is the Shabbat, but the bride is also the bride of Kabbalah, which is the Shekhinah. And the entire L'chadudi is basically a Kabbalistic poem about the unification of the male and the female part of the divine the Blessed Holy One in the Shekhinah. One of the later verses of L'chadodi says, um, Your God will rejoice upon you as a bridegroom does over the bride. Right? Um, now, these are the personae on the holy side, on the divine side. It turns out there are two personae on the demonic side. Samael and Lilith, who are the male and female devils in Kabbalah. Samael and Lilith. Okay, that's Kabbalistic mythology. Those are the principal players in Kabbalistic mythology. There are a lot of other players, a lot of other personae, but I think for us this is enough. And again, for anyone who hasn't been exposed to Kabbalistic mythology, it might already, it might already seem way too much. Um, but this is enough for us, right? Now, the goal of of Kabbalah is to unify these figures, right? 
not so much Samael and Lilith, right, but to unify the divine figures and to somehow bring them together, bring them together. Uh, with the Blessed Holy One, the Shekhinah, it's the idea of effecting their conjugal union, often, as I say, described in sexual terms. Okay, everybody ready to go on? So each slide is like a whole new world, especially if you have never been exposed to this stuff before. This, going back to this, uh, this slide I put there before, just to repeat it. Now the Blessed Holy One is not called what? The Assembly of Israel, the Shekhinah, is in exile. And clearly the notion of the Shekhinah in exile is a way, it's an, in a way it's an identification between the Jewish people and this female divine figure. We're in exile, she's in exile, the world is ruptured, the world is broken, and it's both going down here below and also in the metaphysical realm. The Blessed Holy One has ascended above above. Her consort, the male figure, this Blessed Holy One, has ascended above. The coupling has been separated. The holy name is not complete, and it is not called one. And in, in, in the Kabbalah, especially in the Zohar, there's very little difference between language and being. So if the name, the holy name, the name of God, the four-letter name, yud Vavei, if it's somehow not unified, that means God is not unified. Just a short question. Yes. Why the repetition of above? It's poetic. In, in Aramaic, it, it's, uh, it's a way of, it's actually, in Aramaic, it's v'kutsha brichu selik le'ela le'ela. And actually, for people who know the Kaddish, you will know that at the end of the Kaddish, there's a line that during the, the period of between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, instead of saying, le'ela min kol be'chata we say, le'ela o le'ela. It's just a way of, it's just a poetic, it's just a poetic way of putting it. Um, sometimes people translate it as far above, but I wanted to put the, I wanted to do a more literal translation from the Aramaic to give you a sense of the Zohar's poetic. It's above, above. Now, here's the thing, right? Here's another thing that is a departure from more conventional forms of Judaism. Not only is it the case that sometimes God is unified and sometimes God is not unified, right? Which is itself would be a scandal for a philosopher like Maimonides, but that we, human beings, have deep effect on the divine. If we sin, we can rupture the divine. If we do the correct thing, we can unify the divine. And in fact, a Kabbalist would say, everything that we do is either bringing the divine together or tearing it apart. So if you have a fight with your friend, you're causing damage to your friendship, but you're also causing damage to the divine. If you have a loving, uh, a loving meal with your family or friends, you're bringing human beings together and you're also causing union with the divine. In your business dealings, in your... Uh, in your teaching, in your family relations, in your work, in everything you do, a Kabbalist would say, you're either bringing things together or you're ripping them apart. So this is just a summary of that kind of idea. The scholars call this theurgy, T-H-E-U-R-G-Y, but that's not so important. Um, also from the Zohar, the wicked cause damage above, and unity is no longer found. They separate the queen from the king, and the queen from the king are another names for the Blessed Holy One, the Shekhinah and the king from the queen. And therefore it is not called one. This is the same teaching in a different part of the Zohar. For it is only called one when they are in one coupling, when the male and the female are together. Woe be to the wicked. In Aramaic it's 
It's a vai li'inun chayavaya. Woe be to the wicked. Could also translate sinners. For they cause separation above. For they cause separation above. Right? It's the effect of the human on the divine. Virtuous are the righteous. For they establish the structure above. In other words, human action sets up the divine structure above. Virtuous are the masters of repentance or return, for they return everything to its place. So people might know there's a, there's a phrase in Hebrew, ba'abal tshuva, a master of repentance. Is usually it's somebody who was, often it's used for somebody who was not religious and became religious. It also just, could just mean someone who sinned and then did repentance. And the word tshuva, as maybe you probably know, means repentance, but also liter more literally means return, right? And when it says virtuous are the masters of repentance or return, for they return everything to its place. It's trying to get the literal meaning of the word tshuva as, the, as you returning everything to its place. And what is this, this everything? It's both the world, the social world, but it's also the divine, the divine that gets out of whack, and by doing good deeds, you bring the divine together. I have to say that, I, again, just a, a little editorial comment. I grew up, let's say, Orthodox, right? I, we didn't learn any of this stuff. When I discovered this, when I started studying Kabbalah in my early 20s, I was blown away. And I, even though now I'm 62, and I've been studying it for some decades, still, every time I open up the Zohar, I think, I can't believe this. Maybe if they had taught, me a, taught this to me when I was younger, I'd still be there. But I don't know. OK. If there's one famous line in all of Jewish liturgy, it's the Shema. If anybody knows anything about Jewish liturgy, everyone knows the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Right? It's the proclamation of the divine unity. So, what is the Zohar's interpretation of it? And it says, we have learned concerning the passage of, this is my translation of the Shema, here Israel, Yud Vavhei Our Elohim, Yud Vavhei One. That's my translation, the more literal translation of the Shema. What is one? What is one? Okay? Now, a philosopher like Maimonides says, one is one. It, it's a oneness of such a oneness that there's no oneness like it. And he says it's not one in the sense of one of a couple, not sense one in the sense of one of a species, and not one in the sense of a, of a person who has many parts that's unified. It's a oneness of a kind of oneness that there's no oneness like it. There's nothing in common with any other oneness. That's what he says. It's what, you, what uh, scholars call negative theology. You can't really know what God is. You can only know what God is not. Right? The Zohar has a different path. And the Zohar is written about, uh, about uh, three quarters of a century after Maimonides' death. Um, it has a very different path, almost the opposite path. It makes it very real. And I feel that Kabbalah, although it's wild and imaginative and insane and crazy and hallucinatory, I feel it's much more realistic and much more relatable. This one God who's above any kind of conception of anything you could imagine, what does that have to do with me? The Zohar's God is in drama, in this struggling. Let's look at the Zohar's God. What is one according to the Zohar? This is the assembly of Israel, the Shekhinah, who cleaves to the Blessed Holy One. For as Rabbi Shimon, who's the hero of the Zohar, says, the coupling of male and female is called one. In the place where the female dwells, it is called one. So the Zohar introduces the divine feminine into Judaism and says, without the divine feminine, God is not one. Right? 
And there's actually a pun here, but this is only for, uh, there's, a, there's a pun, I'll just say it. Uh, the word echad, which is the Hebrew word for one, yes? In Aramaic, achid, which has the same letters as echad, doesn't mean one, it means cleaving, holding on to something. It, the Hebrew would be le'echoz, but the dal and the zayin transmit, and this is, this is for people who know a little bit, little bit of the letters. And the Zohar here is playing, as, as often happens in Jewish literature, between Hebrew and Aramaic. They say echad is also achid. It's also holding on. So what is one? It's the two holding on together. When we say God is one, what do we mean? We mean God is two cleaving together, the male and the female, like a conjugal couple. Why, you might ask? Well... The Zohar asks the same question. Because the male without the, this is more of a quote, male without female is called half a body, and half is not one. And when the two half bodies are joined, they become one body, and it is called one. And even I, whose math skills are very limited, I can get that. And it is also a scandal, because Maimonides took great pains to say God has no body. And here we have the idea that the male and the female parts of the divine are each a half a body, and when they're joined together in their conjugal union, they become one. They become a whole body. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. And now we're coming back to the thing I started with. Now that it was worth saying once, it's worth saying again. Now the Blessed Holy One is not called one. Assembly of Israel, the Shekhinah is in exile, and the Blessed Holy One has ascended above, above, and the coupling has been separated, and the Holy Name is not complete and is not called one. And then they say, bottom of the screen, when will it be called one? And the answer, when the queen will again be found with the king, and they shall be coupled as one. Then, a, quote, a verse from Zechariah, in that day shall Yudhei Vavhei the Tetragrammaton be one and his name one. And Yudhei here is a synonym for the Blessed Holy One and his name, the word name, is often associated with the Shekhinah. Now, <clears throat> here the answer, if somebody says to you, is Judaism a monotheism? The right answer is one day. Hopefully, we're working on it. We're working on it. In the Messianic time, yes. Right now, not so much. But we're working on it. Hopefully. You might almost say, Emir Tashem, God willing. Right? We're working on it. In that day, now this verse from Zechariah is also a very famous verse. It's at the last thing of the Aleinu prayer, which is said every time Jews get together and pray. And there's a famous tune that goes, Everybody know that tune? It's obviously a Central European, you know, and this is this. This is this. In that day, yeah, Adonai Echad shall Yudhei Vavei be one. Ushemo, Ushemo, Ushemo Echad. And his name, and his name, and his name will be one. Right? Now that verse is a shocking verse. Even though we sing it, you know, pious Jews say it three times a day. It's sung in every synagogue with that tune. And it's a shocking, it's shocking. And even the Talmud is shocked by it too. What do you mean in that day? In the Messianic time, God will be one. He's not one now? The Zohar's answer is yes, it's true. Now he is not one because the world is broken. You think God is one? Read the newspaper and tell me God is one. Okay, 
Now, just a little American, a little Amer Americana here, right? It turns out this notion of the of of uh, of the of of unity being the essence of holiness is something that other traditions have as well. And this is a quote from Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous letter from the Birmingham jail, which he quotes Paul Tillich. He, he, Martin Luther King wrote his dissertation on Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich was a, the, probably the most influential Protestant theologian of the 20th century. Um, and this is a quote from, the, from uh, Dr. King's letter. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Right? And then uh, Dr. King goes on, he says, is not segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? And he goes on, I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court, in other words, the Brown versus Board of Education declaring school segregation unconstitutional, for it is morally right. And I can urge them to disobey segregation or uh, disobey segregation ordinances, for they are morally wrong. Right? This idea that sin is separation, and again, Dr. King is drawing it from Paul Tillich, who was a Protestant theologian, but there is nothing more of a, of a true Kabbalistic teaching, this notion that sin is separation, in fact, the demonic is separation. Um, Paul Tillich uh, found, as I said uh, earlier, he found in modern art, in Cubist art, for example, an expression of these ideas. So, and he said, there's more religious power, this is Paul Tillich, again, probably the most influential Protestant theologian of the 20th century. He said, there's more religious power in this painting than in a, in, a, in a sort of a representational painting of Jesus hanging in Riverside Church. So he, you know, he, he, lit, he spent a lot of his life in New York. He was German. He spent a lot of his life in New York in Union Theological Seminary. And he, he's comparing this painting hanging in the Museum of Modern Art with a, a very, very sort of uh, sentimental painting of Jesus in Riverside Church. He said, there's more religious power in this painting because it forces people to confront their existential condition of brokenness and separation and fragmentation. Um, and he said, he, Paul Tillich also said that Guernica, he said, is the most religious painting of the 20th century. He's, yeah. So this is a famous painting of, that Picasso painted after the bombing of Guernica by the Nazis um, uh, during the Spanish Civil War. He said, this is the most religious painting of the 20th century. Why? Because it forces you to face the brokenness of the world. And he said, you can't be truly religious until you first acknowledge the brokenness and then you can move on. I just I love that this painting. He says the most he's more religious than a painting of Jesus is Paul Tillich. It's really an amazing statement. The Picasso painting was hung outside the United Nations. Yes, yes, I know that. Yes. And was only allowed to go back to Spain after Franco left. Yes, 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 yes. That's true. Um, so now in Kabbalah. Right, the goal, the way this is expressed, is this rupture of this, these love, these lovers, the male and female lovers, the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah, and a Kabbalist before every ritual performance says a long formula, really an incantation, of which the first words are l'shem yichud kuchabrichu ushkinte, for the sake of the unification of the Blessed Holy One and His Shekhinah, right. And before every ritual performance, a Kabbalist will say, and they, they, they can sometimes be actually quite lengthy, 
Um, but they always start off this way. For the sake of the unification, in other words, I'm doing this, I am you know, taking the lulav, or I am putting on my talit in the morning, or I am making kiddush on Friday night. I'm doing this. Why am I doing this? Because I'm trying to unify God. I'm trying to unify the male and female aspects of the divine. And it goes on, it often goes on for quite a while, but that's really the essence of it. Everybody got that? And as I say, it, goes, it can go on for quite a while, but that's, that's really the essence of it. And these, it's called a kavana, an intention or, or orientation. Um, and uh, it this is why I'm doing it. This is why I'm putting on my talit. This is why I am making kiddush. This is why I'm taking the lulav. This is why I am whatever it is I'm doing. How can you do this at home? Right? <laughs> you know, this is, Kabbalah is like, you know, it's something to do. It's something to do. It's a practice, right? And here's something very concrete. Well, this is again from the Zohar. It turns out that for the writers of the Zohar, and for many Kabbalists, everything in the world embodies aspects of the divine. So the divine, we're all, really in the Zohar, everything that happens everywhere is part of this cosmic drama of the separation and unification of the divine. So everything is, you, me, the table, It's, some people say there's a kind of pantheism there, but it's not actually pantheism, maybe panentheism, which is the divine is everywhere, but the divine also transcends everything. But everything that you do, you embody, you're part of the divine struggle. Somebody once came to my house for a class on Kabbalah. We, people might know on Shavuot, the holiday of Shavuot, there's a custom to stay up all night studying. And I have a class, I teach the Zohar to a class uh, every other week in my home, and on Shavuot, people wanted to bring friends and relatives, and somebody brought their mother. And uh, this woman says to me, the first thing she says to me, she takes me over, she's about 85. She takes me over, she says, you know, I've come here, but I just want you to know I don't believe in God. That's how she starts off the evening. She says, I said, it's okay. You don't have to believe in God to study the Zohar. You have to be willing to participate in God to study the Zohar. You don't have to believe in anything. I'm not asking you to believe anything. Study here, and then tell me how it goes. Right? You have to be, it's a participation. That's why I find the Zohar much more related. It's a much more relatable form of religion. Rather than believing a God out there, you are participating. When I talk to you, different aspects of the divine are in relationship to each other. She stayed the whole night. She stayed the whole night. She was there. She stayed the whole night. I thought she'd stay for an hour. She says, "I says that. I don't believe in God." She was really wanting to make clear, not for me. She stayed the whole night. We ended at five thirty in the morning, and uh, she stayed the whole night. And then she went straight from there. Took a plane to California. She was. It was an amazing. It was an amazing thing. It was one of my great triumphs in pedagogy in my thirty something years of being a teacher. Um, this is something that we all do, or we should do, giving charity. Right now. Here's a, the little Hebrew pun going on here. There are two, there's a word for, the, the, the standard Hebrew word for charity is tzedakah. And famously, tzedakah doesn't mean charity, it means righteousness, right? or justice. Right? Um, there's another word that's, re, that's very similar to tzedakah, which is tzedek, right? which also means justice. 
In Kabbalah, there are, in the Zohar especially, there are a lot of different names for the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah. A lot of synonyms. And one of the words for the Blessed Holy One is staka, and one of the words for the Shekhinah is tzedek. Everybody got that? And helpfully, it's at the bottom there with a footnote that the guy who put this together wrote. Everybody see that? Okay. One who gives staka to a poor person <coughs> makes perfect the holy name above. For staka is the tree of life, and the tree of life is another name for the male, this male divine figure, the blessed holy one. And staka gives <coughs> to tzedek justice. And when it gives to tzedek, then they join one to the other, and the holy name is found to be perfected. If you're walking on the street, well, I live in Manhattan, so this happens to me 40 times a day. If you're walking on the street, and there's a poor person who wants, asking for change, hand the coin to the poor person. And the Zohar tells me, when you do that, you are bringing the divine name together. You are bringing the male and female divine together in the act of tzedakah. When you give the, when you give the, the coin, you are embodying the Blessed Holy One, Staka. And when the poor person receives it, he or she is receiving the, he is embodying Tzedek the Shekhinah. And that act is an act of unification. One of the images for the Blessed Holy One, the Shekhinah, in Kabbalah is the sun and the moon. And we know that the, moon, the moon's light is a reflection of the sun's light. So it's, a, it's part of what's going on here. It's the idea that the, the sun is bestowing and the moon is receiving and then reflecting back. In the very act of giving a coin, you are engaged in that activity. It's a beautiful thing, right? And a lot of the idea of tikkun olam, of repairing the world, that is generally used today as an, a synonym for social justice in synagogues, is really a Kabbalistic idea. And that comes from this kind of passage in the Zohar, in the 13th century text, that this very act... I teach Kabbalah in a lot of settings, in religious settings, non-religious settings. I also teach it in my university, which is a secular setting, and I don't do rituals in the class because it's supposed to be a secular class. But I say to them, you know, I teach this passage, and I say, okay, we're not doing any religious rituals here, but you go right now on Thayer Street, where there are a lot of people asking for money, and you can, do, you can bring together the divine by handing a coin. Just to go on, the same passage, one who effects this arousal below, it is certainly as though he made the holy name in its perfection. In the same manner as he does below, so is it is aroused above. And this is one of the slogans of the Zohar. In the same manner as he does below, so it is aroused above. Or in Aramaic, kegavna de'ihu avid letata, hachi itar le'ela. Right? As it is aroused below, so is aroused above. This word kegavna, which is a very innocent word. It simply means in the same manner as. I often think that instead of calling it the Zohar, the Book of Radiance, it could be called the Sefer Kegavna, the Book of Kegavna, because it's all about how everything going on in one level of the cosmos is going on in all levels. Where I'm, I'm teaching you, and I'm trying to create a group here, and I'm trying to impart a teaching, and this is having effects in, in the metaphysical realm, in the, in the Kabbalistic conception. And let's finish with a story, right? Great Kabbalistic story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Zohar, actually. It's a long, long, long story. I'm just giving you a little snippet of it. It's about these two guys, Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Yehuda. And they're having this long conversation about when the Messiah will come. They're going on and on and on and on and on. And uh, finally, Rabbi Yosef says to his friend, they're, they're, in the Zohar, they're always wandering. 
The Zohar, it's always their, their discussions of mystical interpretations of the Torah are always framed by some kind of story, and it's usually stories which they're, they're, they set off on the path, and then they start talking, and they meet somebody, and then they have all these discussions. And here, they're wandering around, and they're wandering around in some mountain, and Rabbi Yossi says to his friend, Rabbi Yehuda, you know, I remember now, I was in this place with my father a long time ago, and my father said to me, when you turn 60, you're going to get a treasury of supernal wisdom. And I am 60, he says to his friend. And like, you know, new, where's the wisdom? Is that it? Is this as good as it gets? Maybe I already got it. Is there anything more? Right? And I turned 60 a couple years ago, so I, I, really, I was really into the story. And then, just at that moment, meanwhile, Rabbi Yosef went off and entered a cave. Right? Just happens to see a cave there. There are always caves in the Zohar. They always appear out of nowhere. And he finds a book that was wedged. It's up there. Finds a book that was wedged into a crevice of a boulder in the recesses of the cave, in the back of the cave. So they go, he goes into a cave, not only in a cave, but he finds a book. And the book is not only in the cave, it's in a cave within a cave. It's like in a, in a cave within a boulder. He came out with it. And it's a funny thing. Well, we're used to the Dead Sea Scrolls and books and caves. But at this time, it was long before they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, and a book is not something you expect to find in a cave. A cave is like natural, and a book is culture, and it's like it's a funny thing to find a book in a cave. He came out with it. Once he opened it, he saw 72 engravings of the letters bestowed upon Adam. And through them, these, these letters, it was, this is Adam's book. Adam knew all the wisdom of the holy supernal beings and all the dazzling supernal demons. So the full knowledge of the cosmos involves knowing the divine and knowing the demonic. And all the things destined to happen in the world. So this is the complete book. It's the book of the divine, it's the book of the demonic, it's the book of all, everything that ever is going to happen. It's also sort of a meta story that Zohar is telling about itself. Rabbi Yosef called Rabbi Yehuda. He said, dude, look at what I found in the cave. And they started reading. They hadn't managed to read one or two pages of those letters when they began contemplating that supernal wisdom. So they, they're transported. They just read a page or two and like their consciousnesses are altered, right? It's not just a question of intellectual, it's not an intellectual exercise. You read a couple of pages of the book and your mind is, your mind is already in the, in the in the heavenly realms, right? And there's also a story that the Zohar is telling about itself in many ways. Once they succeeded in reading the secrets of the book and to discuss it with each other, a flame of fire and a storm of wind came forth and knocked their hands and the book was lost from them. Rabbi Yosef wept. So they went back to their teacher, right? So he's crying. They, they had the book with everything in it, and they go back to their teacher, right? When they came to Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon said to them, it is not the will of the Blessed Holy One that so much should be revealed in the world. But when the days of the Messiah are near, even the children of the world are destined to find the secrets of wisdom. So you found the book, but the world is not ready for this book. Why? Because the world is ruptured, and you can't have the full knowledge, the full spiritual knowledge, as long as the world is in rupture. And then he says, it's a, and at that time, this is Rabbi Shimon continuing, at that time, 
In other words, in the messianic time, it will be revealed to all, as it is written in the verse from Savania. For then I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of Yudhe and serve him shoulder to shoulder. So this is probably one of the most universalistic verses in the entire Hebrew Bible, right, from Tzfania, right, that all the, 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 the division of the world that was divided at Babel between all the different languages, the speech of the peoples will all be transformed into a pure speech, and they will all serve God shoulder to shoulder. It's this really amazing universalistic vision. What does then mean? For then, at the time when the Shekhinah will arise from the dust and the Blessed Holy One will raise her up. So that the healing, and so this, this is really the, sort of the culmination of this whole teaching, the healing of the rupture in the divine coincides with the healing and the rupture between the peoples of the world. And just as the peoples of the world will all speak one pure speech and serve God shoulder to shoulder, so will the divine, the different aspects of the divine, unify between the Blessed Holy One and the Shekhinah. And as we say in, at, the, at the end of such a teaching, we say, in our, in, 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 it, let, it, let this happen speedily and in our days. Amen. Okay. Now I'm, I'm open to all your questions. Why don't you start? Because you, you had the first question. It's not really a question. It was just at you know the very the very beginning. Um, I mean, I think I think semantics are you know, important, and I know that you're talking about this as as new as new knowledge or maybe different knowledge. But, but you know, my understanding is, and even from what you you said here, Zohar does not teach us that there is not one God. You're set, what your what your title says is that God is not one, and semantics are important. It's not the same thing to say there is not one God and to say God is not one. And how would you differentiate between those two? Because there is one God. God is shattered, but it's still you know, one puzzle. Yeah. All, different, all, the, all different pieces still you know, a puzzle. It needs to be put you know, back, back together for it to be complete, for us to be able to really see it as, as, it, as it is. Um, and we have to do the work in order to be yeah. seeing it as it is. I mean, I think that's, that's part of the story, too, with you know, the rabbis going into, into the cave, gaining the knowledge, and then, and then losing it. I don't really think that as humans we truly learn what we don't actually physically engage in and work for. Mm, well, that's definitely true. I definitely agree with that. And I think that this question of oneness, it's, you know, the Zohar is trying to, in a way, if the, if the, if the divine wasn't unified, at, you know, at least at some level, there would be no drive towards unity, right? But on the other hand, the Zohar, and again, I think this is one of its, its, its honest confrontations with the reality, a world that is so shattered and so divided to say that God is one in this world almost seems untrue to them, right? Whereas they're saying, how could God be possibly one in this world which is shattered, right? And Maimonides had his view, which is God is unaffected by the world. I mean, God, Maimonides says in his, in his 13 principles, he says, if the whole world would disappear, it wouldn't affect God at all. I mean, if God disappeared, there wouldn't be a world, right? And the, this idea of the God is removed, right, in a way, when Maimonides says that, in a way, Maimonides is saying something radical because that doesn't seem to be the case in the Bible, right? In the Bible, God seems to really care, right? God gets angry at the Jews. He, sometimes he wants to wipe them out. You know, he, he loves them. He gets angry at them. He hates them. He loves them. He wants to kill them. He wants to give them promised land. He's, he's an emotional God, right? And Maimonides says, well, God is unaffected by the world, right? 
it's a very radical teaching and it really does go counter in a way to the plain meaning of the biblical text, right? Um, and I think that the Zohar is trying to get, trying to, in their, these paradoxical formulations, as you highlight, right, they're trying to get both of those dimensions. And I think that the importance of sexuality in the divine life is connected to that, right? And there's the, the, the image, and it, it's also not unrelated to Plato's idea about it, the idea that there's a drive towards unity, right? But the, the drive means that the unity is not achieved yet. But if the unity wasn't somehow embedded in the players, they wouldn't be driving towards unity. So it's, it's trying to get, and I think, that, and again, the, 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 the centrality of sexuality and eros in the Zohar is part of the expression of this paradox, right? Paradox of love. If there are two people who are trying to merge, right? But if they were completely merged, then they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't they'd all, then there'd only be one person left. So in a way, you have to keep them separate in order to be love. There has to be some separation in order to be love, right? But on the other hand, there has to be a drive towards unity, and I think that the mystery of sexuality is part of that, and I think that's why, part of why it's so central here, yeah? In the creation of the oneness, it's the unity of the male and the female become one. Yes. Here in the last 50-plus years in society, when the openness of the gay and the lesbian unions, how can they accept this with their ideology? Really great question. So there's, there are a couple ways of, of tackling this, right? One is that uh, uh, this, as, I, as, as comes forth in my charity example, right? The charity example is not necessarily that the rich person has to be a male and the poor person has to be a female, right? These are aspects of all people, right? So when the Zohar talks about male and female, yes, it is true that they, you know, they tend to speak about the Blessed Holy One as male and the, and the Shekhinah as female. On the other hand, it's also relational. And so this would take more doing, right? But it turns out a lot of these figures have gender transformations. And so sometimes the Shekhinah is actually male, right? And there's a figure, there's no, the, the, the figure called the Supernal Mother, who's what well, could be more female than the Supernal Mother, is also often figured as male sometimes. Um, similarly, the blessed, the word, the Blessed Holy One, although it usually refers to the male consort of the Shekhinah, sometimes refers to the Supernal Mother. So there's a lot of, interestingly enough, and it's something that people have noticed more and more precisely in the last few decades, of gender shifting between these personae. And one more thing, which is this. I've talked here mostly about the union between the male and the female because it's really what, what is central here in the Zohar. But there's also, um, the Zohar also very much talks about the union of the two male figures, the father and the blessed holy one, and the two female figures, the mother and the, her daughter, the Shekhinah. And there are also descriptions of that. Um, so it is, it is true that, the, that there's a hetero emphasis in the Zohar, um, but it's also true that there are resources in the Zohar for a much more expansive notion of love and sexuality. Um, you know, the Zohar is written at a particular time in a particular place, right? And there's a lot in the Zohar. I love the Zohar. I've, you know, I would do nothing but if I could. Um, there's a lot in the Zohar that I don't like. Things they say about non-Jews I find often very distasteful, repulsive. Um, and I read, you know, I, there are parts that I think are unredeemable I leave out. There are parts that I think I can reinterpret, um, as is always true with the tradition. And I think the Zohar has, the Zohar has resources 
to overcome some of its more time-bound uh, dimensions. Um, uh, uh, there are descriptions, long descriptions in a passage in the Zohar called the Ijar Rabbah of the relationship between the two male figures, the, the, the figures that, are, that I've described here as the Blessed Holy One and the Supernal Father. In, in, that, in that passage, it's, anyway, it's basically these two male figures. And they're, they're, their relationships are described in almost identical terms as is often used for the male and the female. They gaze at each other. They, their, their harsh dimensions are sweetened by their relationship with each other. Um, so there are these other kinds of, of dimensions. Sorry. Yeah? So the acceptance would be instead of a male and female become one, the partners can become one. Yes. But, but I think there are actually even, even more explicit passages like that in the Zohar of specifically talking about males, two males or two females. Um, in, a, in a work closely related to the Zohar, there's a work called the Share Ora, uh, the Gates of Light by a Kabbalist, another Spanish Kabbalist named Joseph Gicatila. And he says, you know, I haven't talked about the Sfirot, that in addition to these five personae, there are also ten Sfirot, which are another, a whole other mythological system. He says every Sfira is androgynous. And it's all relational. So they can be male and female depending on the context. It's really an amazing, it's an amazing feature. He uses the word androgynous. The word androgynous is actually transliterated in his text. It's really an amazing feature of it. And drawing on early rabbinic, rabbinic myths. Yeah? In the world that we are all part of today, where do we as Jews fit in helping to make the world better to bring the multifacets of what we call of, of God together without bringing. I mean, it seems like so much of the rest of the world is against us now. Is it because we believe that it's acts of love and kindness and charity and that will bring a God together as opposed to? The belief that we must accept Christ. I mean, I, I'm sorry, well, sorry, that's a hard well, I, you know, I'd say that. You know, I really haven't. Got, I mean, I, I, you know, I haven't gotten sort of the downsides of the Zohar. I mean, the, you know, when I, I started off this talk by saying that today the language of Kabbalah is used across the Jewish world to argue about what Judaism should be, right? Um, I tend, because of my own predilections, I tend to emphasize the universalistic dimension of the Zohar, the sort of inclusive part of it. Um, but that's not the only strand. The Zohar is a poetic work. It's not a, it's not a conceptual treatise. It's a poetic work, and it lends itself to different interpretations. Um, there's a way of interpreting the Zohar which makes it very nationalistic, very, very particularistic. Um, and, for example, I mean, let's look at this passage right here. Uh, well, wait. Well, where was that passage I was wanting to look at? Oh, yeah, just right here at the end. What does that mean? At the time when the Shekhinah, Assembly of Israel, will rise from the dust and the Blessed Holy One will raise her up, right? Now, this term, Assembly of Israel, Knesset Yisrael, is interpreted in the Zohar. It's always a synonym for the Shekhinah, for this female divine figure. But it's also clearly evoking as well the people of Israel, right? And now this passage looks very universalistic. And as I say, it quotes probably the most universalistic 
verse in the Bible, this, this, uh, this quote from Stefania, right? But there are people who say no. The, the, what happens when the divine is unified is just as the Shekhinah, who's called the Assembly of Israel, will be you know, unified with the Blessed Holy One, so the people of Israel will be unified with the divine, and the other peoples will be subordinated. Right? And there certainly is enough material in the Zohar to justify that interpretation, and that's the interpretation that more nationalistic, uh, militant, uh, uh, militantly, you know, militantly nationalistic interpretation of the Zohar, right? The, there are also these more universalistic dimensions, which says, well, look, if the world is ruptured, and that is a, both a cause and a reflection of rupture in the divine, then we must heal all peoples and bring all peoples together, as the verse in Sifania says, right? And it really lends itself to these two different interpretations. And when, you know, when people talk about what should the rule of Jews be in the world, well, that's what we're all arguing about. I mean, I think Jews, I mean, probably today, it's probably always been true, but it's also true today that there are deep divisions among Jews about what, how we should interpret our text, how we should interpret our, our tradition and what our role should be. And I think that there are, we are arguing with each other in a way, in, 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 in as fierce a way as ever before, and uh, in some ways, you know, fiercer. So I think that this is, this, you know, this, these studying traditional texts makes possible a language in which we can argue. Maybe that's a very classically Jewish thing to say, yeah. Yeah. I have a question about the origins because, you know, there's all these stories, Rabbi Shimon was the author, and yeah. Moses de Leon. Yeah. And you're saying multiple authors. Yeah. So why is that such a cloudy issue on such an important work? Okay, I'll tell you. All right, so uh, the Zohar is written as a literary work with these frame stories. And the frame stories are all about this group of sages whose names, most of whose names are known to us from Talmudic times, although they didn't necessarily all live at the same time. And Rabbi Shimon is sort of their leader, right? And it's a, you know, it's, so shortly after, not long after the Zohar began, began circulating, the, as I said, it began circulating in pamphlets, some people said, you know, actually this is a lost document. And you know the story about the cave I just gave? People say, that's, you know, that's, that's sort of a meta story in the Zohar. It's like a story, like the Zohar is saying, you know, the Zohar is a, it's a, it's a lost book that was somehow rediscovered, lost book from the land of Israel in the second century that was somehow rediscovered in Spain in the 13th century, right? Um, and that became sort of the normative position. This is a book that was somehow, it was composed in the second century in the land of Israel by Rabbi Shimon or maybe by one of his disciples and then rediscovered in Spain in the 13th century. Um, there were always people who doubted that story, always. Um, and in the 20th century, when the academic study of Kabbalah started, uh, Gershom Shalom, who was you know, the, sort of the founder of the academic study of Kabbalah, he, you know, he came to the conclusion that it really it was written by this one Spanish Kabbalist, Moshe de Leon, in basically between 1270 and 1300, maybe between 1270 and 1290. Um, if you read the Zohar, it doesn't feel that way, right? It, even the main body of that, I mean, without getting to all the details, even the main, what, 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 what scholars call the main body of the Zohar, the Gufa Zohar, it doesn't feel that way. It feels, and when I began studying it, 
you know, I, this was bef this, that was sort of the reigning academic thing. It was written by Moshe de Leon. And I started reading it sort of on my own, autodidact, and I thought, you know, I had a very literary approach to things, and I, it doesn't feel like it's written by one person. You know, the styles differ, and the, the quality differs. Um, what has happened in the academic study of Kabbalah in the last, I'd say, about 20, 30 years, and that has become now the consensus view, is that it was written by a number of different Spanish Kabbalists, and you can actually sort of identify them. They all also wrote books in Hebrew under their own names. So you can see by comparing, contrasting, you can actually see which, and this work is ongoing, it's sort of it's still in its early stages, which parts were written by who, right? Maybe there was an editor, we don't really know how it was put together, and really in the beginning it just circulated in pamphlets. There's some kind of style that is common to all parts of the Zohar, right? So we don't, so it seems like maybe there was an editor, we don't really know. Um, what uh, Malila Helner Eshed, who's a leading scholar and teacher of Kabbalah in Israel, she says, I once heard her say this, I love this, it's one of my favorite things she said. She said, the more scientific the study of the Zohar becomes, the more mysterious the process of its composition becomes, right? Like if we say it was written by Moshe de Leon, okay, we know, there's some guy sitting down and wrote a book, fine. And then it turns out it doesn't really stand up under close textual scrutiny. If you really look at it, it, it falls apart. But the more we know, the more mysterious it is. We don't know anything about the, how these guys met. We don't know if there was an editor. We don't know what the process of their influence was. It says, the more we know about it, the less we know about it. In a way, the traditional story is it was revealed to Rabbi Shimon in a cave by Elijah. That's the traditional story. You know what? that is more understandable than what actually happened. That's less mysterious. Elijah gave the grim book in a cave. Okay, great, fine, that's easy. I can say that. We know much less, right? And again, again, it's clear, we know the names of most of the people who wrote it. Um, how they related to each other is unclear. It seems clear they were working. Uh, Yehuda Libas, who's one of my favorite uh, uh, scholars of Kabbalah, uh, teaches at Hebrew University. Um, he calls the Zohar a movement. He says it's a movement. It's not so much a book as a movement. It was a movement of renewal. He actually calls it a renaissance, a renaissance of Judaism in, in, uh, in, in uh, Spain in the 13th century, of finding, and I'll, tell you, I'll say one more thing about it, which is this. What you find in the Zohar is they, they clearly are aware that they're doing something very new, but they also feel that it's very old. So there's a phrase in the Zohar, milin chadetin atikin, which means new old words. Chadetin, new, atikin, old. Milin chadetin atikin, new old words. Right? They have a feeling that on the one hand, they know they're doing something new because they're doing it, they're creating it. On the other hand, they feel they, they really, it seems clear they really felt they were uncovering the secret meaning of the text that was always there from the beginning. Right? And that comes through in a lot of their stories. This story that I just read to you about the cave, this is exactly that kind of story, right? They're telling a story about themselves, right? We know we're writing it because we're writing it. I mean, I'm, they're sitting there with a pen writing it, so they know they're writing it, right? And yet the story about the cave is they have a sense, when I, what I'm writing, it's the same book that was given to Adam, right? And it was lost because it, the world isn't really ready for it, and we have these fragments you know, there's another legend about the Zohar 
the legend, and it's reported in a, in a 16th century book by uh, Shimon Ibn, Ibn Lavi called Ketem Paz. He says, you know, the czar was originally 40 camel loads worth. In other words, the, we, what we have is only a tiny little fraction of it. And originally, in order to transport it, you need 40 camels to transport it. And because of our sins, it was scattered in the exile. And it was, it was found in fraying manuscripts that even a moth could, could disintegrate. And what happened in the 13th century, he says, and this is a 16th century Kabbalist writing, is these people, they started gathering it together, right? And what we have today is this gathered together of the remnants. And in a way, what he's describing, right, is a literary version of exactly what I'm describing about gathering the divine together, right? <laughs> Putting the Zohar together, it's like putting the divine together. It's like putting the world together. You know, you're putting together a book from these broken fragments that are scattered everywhere, putting together in a book. So in our ritual performances, we're trying to bring the divine together. So in our social practices, we're trying to bring the world together. Yeah, Rabbi. Um, very interesting. Now, I've always heard that, you know, as a result of the expulsion from Spain, 1492, that this created such a trauma that these mystics developed or further uh, developed this idea of, of this idea of God. But you're talking about 13th century, yeah. and they seem to be pretty, um, you know, it seems to be very central. What, what was the main difference, or, or how much more traumatic could they make it after the expulsion from the Kabbalah that you're describing? Right. So Gershom Shalom had this idea. Gershom Shalom was a... Was a a scholar, a philologist, a textual scholar, but he was also a philosopher of history. And he told a story about the history of Jewish mysticism even before Kabbalah. And he tells a story, a dialectical story, of this movement gave rise to this movement, this movement gave rise to this movement. He, you know, he tries to identify distinguishing characteristics of each period. And it's a beautiful story. Um, and it's really laid out in major trends in Jewish mysticism, this series of lectures he gave in New York in 1940. The only problem is, maybe it's not true that the story he tells is like, in a way, it's too easy, it's too smooth. And what happened after Shalom that his students, some of his major students, like Moshe Dell and Yudalibis, try to say, you know, it's a really great story, but it's, it's not necessarily accurate. And in particular, he said that the messianic dimension of Kabbalah only really came out at, after 1492, and, and it was a re reaction to the expulsion from Spain. And uh, it's probably not, 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 not really the case, uh, you know, that the Zohar is filled with messianic tension. And the, the passage, this passage I gave to you is a good example of that. Um, and, you know, there's no reason to think, really, I mean, why should it be the expulsion from Spain? I mean, Jews have been expelled and exiled and traumatized again and again throughout history. And, you know, why should the expulsion from Spain necessarily be the trigger for, for it? Um, it's certainly true that things change, you know, in, in, in Sfat, in, in the mid-16th century, you know, Isaac Luria comes and completely revises Kabbalah and his whole own system. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it seems like it's harder to say that today. You know, the thinking today is that that's, it's not the case that Messianism appears only in the 16th century. It really is, it's really there from the beginning, and, and the Zohar is, is, is filled with it. 
In fact, the Yuda Libis, his first major scholarly work was called The Messiah of the Zohar, Amashir Shal Zohar. It was his, sort of his, his breakthrough article where he you know, burst on the stage you know, and really sort of re very much revising, uh, revising that idea. Uh, you know, Messianism comes and goes in Jewish history. Um, and certainly the Zohar has, is filled with this, this, this crackling tension, right? In part because of this tension of, we know God is one, but God, we know God is not one, right? It's that tension, right? It creates a tension that, that, that crackles with, with some, you know, urgency. Um, so, that's, yeah. But yeah. wasn't there a theory that it was called automatic writing, Gileon? Uh, yeah, there's a theory that some of the Zoharic writings, and it's, people often say it more for the later strata. So there's, at, shortly after the main body of Zoharic writings were written, the two other books were written called the Tikkunia Zohar, say the Rectifications of Zohar, and the Raya Mehemna, the Faithful Shepherd. They were, they, people usually think they were written by the same person. It's not, that's not so obvious. Um, and there, it's very much, it's much more stream of consciousness, right? It's very hard text to, to really figure out, even like, the, just like to get like a plain meaning, because parts of it are, the, the associative leaps are very fast. And uh, uh, Israeli scholar named Amos Goreich had this theory that uh, some of it was written through automatic writing um, in various ways, and he wrote a whole book trying to demonstrate this and drawing connections with surrealism and, and so forth. Um, the Zohar itself, the main body of the Zohar, makes a lot of you know, free associations, but they, you know, if you read it for long enough and enough of it, they begin to make sense. For, for example, you know, in middle school, we all learned not to use mixed metaphors, right? You know, we don't, we, you know, you say like, you know, you shouldn't say, I don't know, what's a metaphor? You know, uh, you know rolling stone gathers no moss, don't say a rolling stone gathers no coins, say. Right? It would work, it's a mixed metaphor, right? The Zohar mixed metaphors and mixed imagery are its basic idiom, its basic stock and trade. So, you know, the, they'll start talking about a tree. And then, before you know it, it turns out the branches of the tree are rivers. And the rivers are lamps. And the lamps are sapphires, right? And it won't say the tree is like a river, right? It'll describing this tree, and then it'll say, and this river, right, without any transition at all. But I don't think that's a product of automatic writing. I think that's its poetic style, right? And I could show you passages like that. They just, they just move from one image to another without any transition, not even a like. This is like. They don't even, occasionally they say that, but it's very rare. They just move from one to another. And, and I think the message is you know, uh, that, that there, there's a certain resemblance between these things, right? So let's take a river, right? The river is something that flows. It's an image of divine flow. But other things flow as well. Milk flows. Oil flows, right? And the idea is you should see the divine flow in all these things equally, right? Yeah? Well, all those metaphors in the Zohar, like when they say a donkey is riding past a bush, aren't, when they refer to specific things, isn't there symbology in that? Yeah, well, yes and no. I, yes. So... Yes, but when you know when you read it often enough, you get the you get the following feeling that there that the, even the word metaphor is not the right word because a metaphor implies that there's a reference. So when I say my love is like a red rose, right? Okay, so I'm talking about my love, 
And then I want, if, if you want to understand what my love is like, it's like a red rose. But the real thing is the love, right? In the Zohar, you get the feeling that what they're trying to convey to you is there is no final thing, right? So that, it, you know, I'll get, here's an example. The, the one of the, and I didn't talk about it really, the Sfirot, one of the other, in addition to the Personae, the other famous structuring thing of Kabbalistic mythology are the Ten Sfirot. And that's, they, people started talking about the Ten Sfirot already in the 12th century, and it's standard, by the time the Zohar is written, it's a standard thing. In the main body of the Zohar, they never use the word Sfirot, ever. And if you see the word Sfirot, you know that it's from a later strata of the Zohar, and it's not from the main body of the Zohar. They never, ever use it. So one might ask why. They certainly, they certainly use the basic ideas of the world being structured by ten Sfirot. They never, ever use the word Sfirot, and they don't really like to use the standard words for the Sfirotos. Occasionally they do. And, I th and they, so what do they use instead of Sfirot? They use levels, like rungs of a ladder. They use rivers. Trees, lamps, sapphires, um, kings, crowns, uh, you know, and so forth. And I think that the reason they don't use the word spherot is they don't want you to think that it's all, at the end of the day, you can just translate it into spherot. They want you to say that, you know, a river, it's, the divine is, is flowing in the river, or the, sometimes there are ten rivers, right, just as much as the spherot and the ten sapphires, and the ten crowns, and the ten kings, and the ten rungs, these are all equal. So that's why I say, like, technically speaking, it's not metaphor, because metaphor implies there's a referent that the image refers to. Here, it's, you're supposed to be experiencing it everywhere. And I think that's why they don't use words here, they don't want you to get hung up on it, right? Um, and so when you say there's a symbology and there's a decoding, right, that's true, but if you get too stuck up, hung up on it, then you're missing the point, because the Zohar is poetry, right? And poetry, if you could decode poetry into its message, you wouldn't need the poem. You could throw away the poem, right? You know, the, the, in, in, in the history of American literary theory, there was a school called New Criticism in the 1950s, and one of their slogans was the heresy of paraphrase. If you can par you shouldn't ever paraphrase a poem, because you, you can paraphrase a poem, you can throw away the poem, right? A poem is all of its words, right? And the Zohar is a form of poetry or prose poetry. And in order to really understand it, you have to read it. You can't, you can't paraphrase it. If you paraphrase it in a way, you've lost it. On the other hand, if you haven't taken Kabbalah 101 and know about the Ten Sefirot and their names, you won't be able to understand the Zohar. So you know what? I compare it to, like, if you want to read, let's take an avant-garde poet. Who's an avant-garde poet? Mallarmé, a French poet, Mallarmé, or name your favorite avant-garde poet. If I want to read Mallarmé, who's an avant-garde poet in France in the late 19th century, I have to know French. Right? If I don't speak French, I can't read Mallarmé. On the other hand, if I, if, I know, if I insist on French syntax and grammar and semantics, I will not understand Mallarmé at all. Right? I won't understand him. I won't know what he's saying. Right? But if I don't know French grammar and syntax, I won't understand at all what he's doing. Right? And Zohar's like that. If you haven't taken Kabbalah 101 with the charts and the whole thing, you've got to know that stuff. But you also have to forget it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something, I guess, to me, entirely different. Yesterday, I happened to watch, but not closely, The Ornament of the World, which was a story of medieval Spain during uh -huh. the 12th, 13th, 14th century. Oh, wow. So, 
the influence of the conquerors, the Arabs, was extremely strong. Jews had a lot of freedom during some of that time. Yeah. How, how does that fit in culturally? To well, uh, so the, the Zohar is written in Christian Spain. So the, you know, the reconquest of Spain, the so-called Reconquista, you know, is a long process that ends in 1492. But by the time the Zohar was written, a, it had, you know, a large parts of Spain were, had been reconquered by the Christians. So the Zohar is definitely written in Christian Spain, in Catalonia and Castile. And you feel that influence. I mean, you know, people say, look, you know, in the Zohar, we talk about the Son of God, right? You think... Um, uh, some people think, this, and this is just pure speculation, that the Shekhinah, right, is in some way that the, 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 the emergence of the divine feminine, of this, this divine female figure, is, has to be in some way related to the cult of Mary that appeared in, in Catholic Spain you know, about a century earlier. Um, there are, in churches during this period, there, they, they show these two female figures the uh, you know the ecclesia the church and the synagogue the, the the synagogue right and the synagogue is has downcast eyes and is you know is broken and the, the 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 ecclesia is the church is triumphant right and some people think that some of the zohar is a response to that or some a response to it or engaging in that polemic with christianity that's there's an engagement with christianity in the zohar sometimes in concealed actually always in concealed forms because the literary conceit of the Zohar is that it's written in the second century before Christianity was dominant. Um, and similarly, you know, many people think that Maimonides, Maimonides' philosophy, Maimonides wrote in the Muslim world. He was born in Muslim Spain. He lived a lot of his life in Egypt. Uh, that his philosophy could be seen as very, and not only could be seen, but it is clearly heavily influenced by Muslim Aristotelian philosophers. Um, and so clearly the cultural context matters. Um, <laughs> Some people have tried to find traces of Muslim influence in the Zohar, and it's, there isn't that much, really. Um, it's much more of an engagement with, with the Christian world than with the, uh, than with the Muslim world, um, uh, which is, as I say, much more heavily found in Maimonides. On the other hand, um, after the expulsion from Spain, well, even before that, but certainly after the expulsion from Spain, Kabbalah flourishes in North Africa in the Muslim world, and there's there are you know the big centers of Kabbalah in in uh, in Morocco and Tunisia, in Yemen, in Iran, uh, in certainly in Iraq, what we today we call Iraq, big centers of Kabbalah in the Muslim world. Um, so it's it's a complicated story, yeah. I mean, just to me that sounded like the. Yeah. And now we're, I mean, it's hard to know because we're within it, but we're go undergoing it. You know, like Erwin said, you know, the recognition of homosexual relationships right. are okay. And I'm sure there were many other times in history. Yeah. You know, this whole battle of the religions right now. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So we're in the middle of it, and it's hard for us to yes. understand. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I, I mean, I think it's and I think it's interesting that in the middle of this time of ferment, that Kabbalah has become central to Jewish mm -hmm. debate. You know, it's an interesting feature of it that somehow it's 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 viewed as sort of a fertile generative ground upon which to articulate different visions, different visions of Judaism, in our time. So. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.